Well, we're, uh, we're studying through the book of Numbers, and if you're not familiar with it, this is an Old Testament book. This is the fourth book in the Bible. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and it's considered one of the books of Moses. Uh, and I, you know, I've sort of said this in some form every week, but I think it's worth saying every week that, that we not only believe this is valuable because it's, just because it's God's Word, it's part of the Bible, but Jesus himself would refer back to the books of Moses and say that, you know, Moses wrote about me. The things that Moses wrote concern me. And uh, no devout Jew would say that. That that had to be a claim of the Messiah himself. So as we're doing this, we're not just trying to say, wow, here are some neglected Bible stories that we'd like to put before you. A lot of them are neglected, but the hope is that we're able to connect the dots from this text to Christ, and that to do that is not a leap, but those dots should be connected because Jesus said they are there. So let's look at this, Numbers chapter 17, and I'm going to say before I read this passage that something happened in my own preparation for this sermon, and this, this happens every once in a while. Sometimes I sit down with a passage, and I've got a pretty good idea where it's going to take me and, and what the direction of the sermon will end up being, and, and that's, that's how it plays out. But sometimes a sermon will move on me. And uh, you're going to see this term in this passage, grumbling. And that term shows up quite a bit in, this, in, in the, the time of Israel in the wilderness. And if you haven't been here, the original title of the book of Numbers is not Numbers. The original Hebrew title is In the Wilderness because that's what it's telling you about. When they're in the wilderness, this, this uh, term grumbling or the verb grumble starts showing up very quickly. So what I thought the sermon was going to be about was complaining. And I'm a complainer, and so I wasn't looking forward to the sermon because I was going to be convicted by my own sermon. And I, th- and I think we will be convicted by the sermon. But where the sermon took me was up underneath the behavior. Like If the, if the behavior is the complaining, the grumbling. Where I want to go is up underneath it, and that should be a window really into all kinds of behaviors of ours. So let's look at this, Numbers chapter 17. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the, in the bulletin. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. And I'm going to give one editorial note here. The Hebrew word for staff is the same as the Hebrew word for tribe. Write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron 
for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony, to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses, as the Lord commanded him, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for worship. We thank you that we might sing together. We thank you that we might pray together. We thank you that we might sit together and be together and greet one another. We thank you that we get to hear one another's voices. We thank you for the table. And we thank you for your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I, I, I want to give you an imaginary scenario. I want you to picture that you have a friend. And let's, let's say this is sort of an entrepreneurial go-getter friend. And your friend comes to you and says, you know what? I, I'm going to open up a new restaurant. And I've really been thinking about this restaurant a lot. And I have a really particular vision for it. I want it to be different. I want it to be unique thought about it a lot. I'm about to go out and get funding. I've got a business plan and everything. And, and uh, so let's say you're talking to your friend and you say, wow, that, that's really cool. Tell me, like, what, what's your vision for the restaurant? What will it be like? Okay, let's say that your friend said, all right, the way it's going to be is it's going to be like in an old building with exposed brick walls. And the lighting in, these, in this restaurant is going to have like clear bulbs with sort of orangey filaments. And the servers in this restaurant, well, let's say like the men servers in this restaurant, they'll, um, they'll have beards and chunky glasses and um, chambray shirts and aprons. If the aprons go up to here, I want to have like brass hardware that connects the aprons. Uh, I'd like their, their forearms to be tatted up. I want the writing in the restaurant in chalk. I just kind of want chalk writing anywhere that we can have it. I want the menus sort of on uh, kind of cardstock, off-white, recycled paper, a lot of detail about the... Okay, at some point, if you've eaten out like in the last 10 years, you'd have to say to your friend, I, I, I don't know how to tell you this. Not only have I already been to this restaurant, it's all over the United States. Now, I don't know how many foodies are in here or how often you eat out, but like the restaurant I just described is just become everywhere. One day when they make movies about 2017, when there's a restaurant scene, that's what it will look like in the movie in 2050. But the weird thing is, you know, it's not like a public service announcement went out 15 years ago to new restaurant uh, entrepreneurs to say this will be the template going forward for, for new restaurants. But there might as well have been. So many new restaurants look and feel like that. And that's amazing to me because, okay, there, there, there was no template, there was no order given, but 
different people independently of each other thought like this will be original, this will be cool, this is, this is really how I want it to look and how I want it to feel. And so many of them feel so similar. Here's what I want you to think about. When, um, when God's people, and, and I, I want you to think in terms of this morning, the people of God. I'm not so much talking about human beings in general disobeying God. That's not supposed to surprise us. The, 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 the Bible is very upfront about that. But I'm talking about the people of God. When we disobey God as the people of God, the Bible it uses a lot of terms to, to describe what, what is that or to convey what it is, but, but it will call it rebellion. So I'm going to call it that this morning, to rebel against God, not just to make a mistake or kind of went off the path there, but to rebel. When God's people do that, it can feel in the moment like we are really doing something original. You know, like I am tired of the expectations of the church south. I am tired of like worrying about what everybody thinks about me in the Bible Belt and kind of walking lockstep with the Sunday schoolers like a bunch of lemmings. Okay, I'm going to think for myself. I'm going to say some things that maybe people don't want to hear. And in the moment, it it feels brave and original. And it's so typical. When God's people rebel, it is so typical. You literally can blueprint it. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. Um, Now, the the particular kind of rebellion that I'm looking at this morning is, is grumbling. Or complaining. And again, that verb shows up, at, I'm going to talk about this in a second, as soon as God's people come out of slavery, as soon as they're free of their captors, they start complaining. But I want to zoom the camera out and just think about what, what are we learning about the nuts and bolts of rebellion of God's people. So here's what I want to look at. First, the default of rebellion you know, default, like your computer has a default mode, what it does when it doesn't know what to do. The object of rebellion, and then the disturber of rebellion. Okay, the default of rebellion, the object of rebellion, and the disturber of rebellion. First off, the the default, and under the passage in your bulletin, I reached back earlier in the books of Moses. Look at this first one. Now, this this is who is being described here. It's the same people that are in our passage. These are people who used to be slaves, and then God bursts, in, bursts on the scene. They've seen the plagues that God sent against the Egyptians. They've seen the nation of Egypt wailing and mourning because God has taken the firstborn of every household in Egypt. But he's passed over the households of Israel. They've escaped. They've been, they've been led by a visible pillar of fire at night and pillar of cloud by day. And the Bible never says that's mythic. It says that actually happened. They've seen the Red Sea parted. They've walked through it. They've actually seen what a, a water wall looks like and walked past it. These people go three days in the wilderness and they can't find water. And having seen all that, what happens? Exodus 15. Then Moses, 
made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And it just escalates from there. That the people of God say things like, you know, you brought us out here to kill us and our children. Why can't we go back to Egypt where we sat around pots of meat and vegetables? I mean, they, I mean, they, they make out Egypt like it's a photo from TripAdvisor. Like they, we just sat around and ate all that we wanted in Egypt, but you've, you've brought us out here to kill us. This is the default of God's people. And, and when you look at the things that Israel and the church complain about, there's two biggies that we just default to. The two biggies are, number one, circumstances. Something hurts. I don't have what I want. I don't have what I want when I want. And so we grumble and complain. That's the first one. But the second one is leadership. We complain about our leaders. And I'm not talking about political leaders. I'm talking about the people set apart by God to lead the household of God, to lead what we call the covenant community. Now, that bears on this passage. And let me tell you why. In the chapter before, there has been a rebellion called the Rebellion of Korah, where a group of people came to Moses and said, Hey, look. Everybody in this nation of Israel is holy. And you know what? God on Mount Sinai said that everybody in Israel is a priest. This is an entire kingdom of priests. And by the way, that's true. The priesthood of all believers doesn't start in the New Testament. God says that at Mount Sinai. All of you will be priests. So Moses, who are you to act like you're the main person who speaks on God's behalf? And Aaron, who, Moses' brother, who are you to think that of all the priests, you're the high priest? And that you alone on the Day of Atonement should go into the Holy of Holies and do things that the rest of us can't do. Why do you think that you're different? And the long and the short of it is, if you read the chapter before, God punishes the people who led the rebellion by death. The earth literally opens up and they fall in and the earth swallows them. Now, again, it's not given as a mythic account. The narrative reads as real eyewitness history. Okay, so you, you would, what would you think if you were the rest of the congregation of Israel and you saw that? What, what would be your mental takeaway? Don't grumble. And guess what's the next thing they do? Numbers chapter 16 the whole congregation of Israel comes to Moses and to Aaron and grumbles. And a plague breaks out in the entire Israelite community. And before it's over with, over 14,000 Israelites die. Now, so therefore, you get to Numbers chapter 17 and we've got to get a really clear visual clarification Who are the priests of God? I'll get to that in a second. But before we go any further, I I, I want you to think about this default thing. 
Uh, have you ever said, or if you haven't said it, have you ever thought this? And I had someone to say this to me just a few months ago. I just feel like if I saw God like write something in the sky, I'd be different. I just feel like if I had seen the pillar of fire at night, or if I had seen the Red Sea part, or if I had seen Jesus heal people and miraculously feed people. I just feel like I'd be... I just, I, I, it's so hard to live by faith and not by sight. I just feel like if I could see one big miracle, two big miracles, I would be a different person. Let passages like this disabuse you of that. The people who saw those things, Judas Iscariot, who lived with Jesus for three years and had a front row seat to the inexplicable, rebelled. Now that should tell us something. That it's not as if, yeah, God, just give me more visual proof, and I'll find you compelling. Just give me more visual proof, and it'll be easier to obey you. It's just not true. And the reason it's not true is because of the hearts that we show up with. And I'm speaking in the first person. It's our hearts that we show up with. Okay, that's the default. That's our default mode. What's the object of the rebellion? Or really, I guess I should say, uh, who is the object of the rebellion? And this is interesting because there's, there seems to be an apparent object, but then there's the real object. Now, in this case, who's the apparent object? Look look back in verse 5. The people don't like Moses being the main spokesman, the main leader, tribe of Levi. They don't like his brother Aaron being the high priest, tribe of Levi. Why does the tribe of Levi get to be better than everybody? How are they more important than everybody else? Verse 5, God says, Bring all these staffs that represent the different tribes. Bring them into the tabernacle. The next day, you're going to get your answer. You're going to get a visual answer as to which one I've set apart. Verse 5. The staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Now, this next part's really important. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. So what is God recognizing? The people of God, my people, are grumbling against you. But is that the ultimate object of their grumbling? Who are they really grumbling against? Look down in verse 10. Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. And look down in your bulletin from earlier in the book of Numbers. That second passage in italics, it talks about that all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So on the surface, it looks like, hey, what's the bad thing they're doing? They're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. But look down at that last verse, Numbers fourteen twenty-seven. God says, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble 
against me. Maybe the ultimate demonstration of this is what happened in the life of David. What what was David's big, famous, splashy sin? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he killed her husband, and then he didn't deal with it for all those months. And then God confronted him. And he wrote psalms on the heels of that. But, but, but one really important psalm that he wrote after his big splashy sin is Psalm 51. And, and this is significant what he says in Psalm 51. He says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. And I don't know when that psalm went public or when the, the larger congregation began to know the lyrics of that. But I've wondered, how did that feel to the descendants of, let's say, Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband? Uh, no, it wasn't against him only. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against our family. You sinned against your wives. You sinned against the subjects that you were supposed to set an example for. And, you know, all that would be true. But what is David getting at? At the end of the day, the buck of sin stops where? It stops with the living God. We sin against God. And it's really hard to remember that. I've been a Christian now over 30 years. I've been in the church over 40 years. And I've, been, I've had good teaching in my life. I, I, this keeps leaking out of me. I keep feeling like and thinking that sin is ultimately about how it affects me or someone else. So like I've shot myself in the foot or I've really discouraged myself or I've done something foolish when I should have done something wise or I've hurt this person or I've let them down or I didn't love them as I should. And of course, all those things factually are true, but but what it can feel like is that the real ultimate court is us. That sin ultimately is horizontal. It is horizontal, but it is ultimately vertical. When we rebel, and again, especially if you're visiting, I don't know what this feels like to you. I don't know what your background with churches, if it, if you have any, I don't know what, what you think of sermons or preaching. Please hear this. I mean, I'm speaking in the first person. When we sin, It's against God. We forget we live on his earth. And we get angry when he doesn't act the way we want him to. He lets somebody be sick that we don't want to be sick. That we lose something that we wanted to keep. Something unfolds in a way that confuses us or makes us sad or it's super hard or it's super painful and we feel like you didn't do what you're supposed to do. And the reason is the default mode of every heart in this room is that you exist for me. We exist for him. We walk on his earth and we breathe his air to give him glory. Which, ironically, were that to happen, would be joy, would fulfill our hearts, would be that we were actually doing the very thing that we were created to do. But no, 
that is not our default mode, no matter how much good information we've had. So that's a pretty bleak scenario. Where, where do we go from here? And th this is the beauty of the fact that there is a disturber of rebellion. We cannot think our way out of it. We cannot discipline our way out of it. But there is this great capital D disturber of rebellion. How do you see that in the text? Well, go back to uh, verse 12. This is interesting because the Israelites are going to say something that's more accurate than they know. They've seen the earth swallow a group of people who led a rebellion. Then they've seen a plague break out in the Israelite camp that took, took out over 14,000 people. Can you imagine that? Over 14,000. I mean, the, like when this room is packed, it's just a little over 400 people. 14,000. So they, they've seen that. That's fresh on their mind. God sets apart the staff of Aaron, i.e., he sets apart the tribe of Levi. How do they respond? Verse 12. The people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? What? For all the things that Israelites got wrong, what do they write about? Here's what they write about. Our sin is worthy of death. And again, I don't know how that lands with you. That might sound like a very Old Testament sort of thing to say. Let me quote from the New Testament. The wages of sin is what? Death. You know, the miracle in these biblical accounts is not when a plague breaks out. The miracle is that there's not always a plague. The miracle is that there's not always a plague. God is holy, holy, holy. He doesn't rehabilitate sin. He's just. And His justice cries out that law-breaking must be dealt with. It's the just thing to do. That when He makes the first human beings... He says to them, on the day that you eat of that tree, there's only one negative prohibition. One. On the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And there's no promise of, but there'll be this follow-up plan of salvation. Don't worry about it. I've got it covered. He just says, you'll die. And they do it. And we die. And just for our own sanity, we have to stop and remember that sometimes. Our sin deserves the plague. And not just the physical death. What do my lusts deserve? What does my self-absorption deserve? What is the fact that I like pleasure more than I like caring for people? What does that deserve? Death. Death of the body and ultimately death of the whole person, body and soul, eternally. When the Israelites say, 
God is showing his wrath. Who is safe? No one's safe. They are exactly right. But is that the end of it? I mean, I hate to send you out on that note. God is terribly holy and we are deserving of death. Go in peace. It's not much peace because we're the deservers of the wrath. But then get this part, verses 8 and 9. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. In other words, after the earth swallowed these rebels, after a plague breaks out in the camp, and there's all these dead bodies in the Israelite camp, what is God still saying? I have set apart people to represent you. And specifically, I have set apart a high priest from the tribe of Levi so that you can know that once a year, that man is going to go into the Holy of Holies. And even that man, if he goes another day or goes the wrong way on that day, he'll drop dead because of his sins. But I've provided the man to go in there and represent you so that you'll know I take your sins away. Do you know why I take your sins away? Is it because your character is just so lovely? It just has a few glitches I need to take care of. No, no. Over and over and over, you act like you don't want to know me. Over and over and over, you show yourself to be unlovely in your life. But I love you. I love you and I want you to be with me. I want to live in your midst and I want you to live around me. And by the way, the tribes had different spots that they lived north, south, west, east of the tabernacle. But the buffer zone all around the tabernacle was the tribe of Levi. I want to be in your midst. I'm not going to stop being holy, 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 but I want to be with you. What is our staff of Aaron? And I have to, I have to give this person credit. There's a wonderful commentator on the book of Numbers. I've heard Jonathan quote him on the bulletin named Ian Duguid. It's a pretty great name, Ian Duguid. And He's an Old Testament scholar, and he, he used the most wonderful phrase. He said, the morning of the resurrection of Jesus, the smell of almond blossoms was in the air. What does he mean by that? The morning, of the Easter morning, the smell of almond blossoms was in the air. What is he saying? Is that this man, not from the tribe of Levi, different priesthood, tribe of Judah, God is visually showing for all your sin, for all your rebellion, for all the ways that you don't listen to me. I've set apart a man for you. I haven't stopped being holy. I haven't stopped hating sin. It is God's beauty that he hates sin. Sin ruins everything. It is his glory that he hates sin. We love sinners. Look at the resurrection. Look at all the people looking at the resurrection. This man is set apart. Has that gotten into your heart? 
I mean, this past week, I bet the majority of people in this room have done something where they have thought, it, it, and let's just say even church members, if my church knew I was like this, if my community group knew that I was like this, they would cut me off. And Christians can be judgmental, and Christians can withhold love. We, we can get that really wrong. But when you trust in Jesus Christ, God will not cut you off. He is not embarrassed by you. He has set apart his man, and he wants you to know he is for you. Let me end with this. I, um, when, when my dad died in 2010, you know, just had letters and some keepsakes. And I, um, I knew I wanted to put them somewhere, but I didn't know where to put them and didn't want to throw these things away. And actually, it was a, a, a church member. I, I, I bumped into her somewhere, and somehow this came up. And she said, you know what you need? You need like a, like a memory box. And I had no idea where to get a memory box. And she said, you want me to buy one for you? i tell you what, I'll buy one for you. I got it. Which is so nice for somebody to say, I got it. And so she bought me this wonderful box, and it's in my closet to this day. It's this box of letters and some objects and things related to my dad and his, his death. And I know exactly where it is, and it's important to me. What's the most valuable memory box in the world? Or at least let me ask you this. What was the most valuable memory box in history? The Ark of the Covenant. And according to the book of Hebrews, it had three things in it. The stone tablets of the law of Moses. A container full of manna. It was preserved to remind that God didn't just speak to his people, but he fed them when they couldn't feed themselves in the wilderness. And there was one other thing. They must have just cut off the part with the buds. It was Aaron's staff. It was in the Ark of the Covenant. Because God wanted his people to remember, there is a priest for you. And you need one. But I've given you one. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your priest. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you that you are holy. And we praise you that you love sinners. We praise you that you are just. And we praise you that you will justify ungodly people. Thank you that even when the people were rebellious, even when they were stiff-necked, even when they weren't listening, even when they were running around scared that you were still saying, there is a priest for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the aroma of those blossoms. We thank you for your resurrection. Help us to trust you, to entrust ourselves to you with our sins. Would you sweeten our hearts tenderize our hearts, our rebellious hearts. Would you turn them towards you, not away from you, and melt us? And we ask this in your name. Amen.